Welcome to Plenary Session. I'm Vinay Prasad. I'm an associate professor at the University of California, San Francisco. I'm a practicing hemonc doctor, and my interests are medicine, oncology, and health policy. And that's what you're going to get on Plenary Session. This is season four, hashtag zero COVID. It's zero COVID because we're not going to talk about COVID. We're back. Oncology, medicine, health policy. We've got a lot in store for you. But first, a plug. If you like this podcast, leave us a rating or write us a review. It helps new listeners find the show. You can follow us on Twitter at plenary underscore session. You can email us at plenary session podcast at gmail.com. Give us your suggestions on what we should be covering. And we got a new YouTube channel, Vinay Prasad, MD, MPH. Follow us on YouTube. I'm putting up a 10-part series on reading and interpreting cancer clinical trials. You'll want to watch it there. And if you really love this show, you can back us on patreon.com. Patreon backers get access to slides for lectures I give on Plenary Session. And with that, let's start the show. We're back, we're back, we're back, we're back. Season four, Plenary Session, we're back. And this is hashtag zero COVID as promised. I'm back. I'm Dr. Vinay Prasad. And this is the first monologue of season four. And it's going to be different than prior seasons because I'm going to try to do it without any edits. I'm doing it without the, without the, uh, the safety net. So... Let's begin season four. Let me share my screen. I'm going to try to do these both video and audio in the future. So let's see if we can do it. Season four of Plenary Session. That's right. It's what you've been waiting for. It is the seasons are changing. Zero COVID is in the air. And we're going to be hitting oncology and medicine and policy very, very hard. We're going back to our usual stomping grounds. This is season four Plenary Session. Plenary Session it's, it's the only podcast that will give you a certain point of view. And that point of view is an evidence-based medicine point of view. Although we don't like to call it that anymore, we like to call it rational decision-making, EBM. EBM is dead. It's been corrupted by people who were apparently at a meeting sometime in the 1990s, but it's been corrupted and no longer useful. So we're going to do rational decision-making. That's what Plenary Session is about. Seasons are changing. I feel a new spring is in the air, and that spring is zero COVID. So the last few thoughts. As we, as we never talk about COVID again. This, of course, is a apocryphal teddy bear. This is a teddy bear that decided it was better to stay inside than to take any risk at all. You know, you always want zero risk, zero COVID, zero risk. And the bear, unfortunately, spent the rest of its, its life at home and life passed him by because he didn't want to go out there and, and experience things. And, of course, it was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek commentary, but it had a lot of truth in the COVID world where – you know, if I were to summarize what I thought was always wrong about COVID, it was a bunch of people with a certain point of view on social media were congregating, and they decided that the best thing to do to fight COVID would be to shame and blame, to recommend restrictions without resources. And of course, on this podcast, we tried to do the opposite. We tried to show you the other way that we could have had progress with SARS-CoV-2, but I'm setting that aside. We're not going to talk about it. We're not going to rehash that. And if they want to spend more energy arguing about whether or not a vaccinated person in the U.S. should wear a mask, then the energy they spend on getting a vaccine to somebody in India and Brazil, well, you know, shame on them. Uh, but that's their prerogative. And I'm going to set it aside. So, so long, teddy bear. And so long, COVID. 
Um, but there was one last thing. I just had one last thing I had to say before I put it aside forever. And it was this Universal Parks. Uh, this was uh, the studio and this is what they say. Um, this is the roller coaster. You can see it for yourself. Look at that roller coaster. I think it propels at speeds in excess of 65 miles an hour. Here's what it says. Fully vaccinated guests can now experience attractions without face coverings. For the first time ever, we see the excited facial expressions of guests riding the Velocicoaster. Wow, wonderful. Now, I wonder if anyone stopped to think for a second, if wearing a cloth mask over your face while being propelled at 65 miles an hour outside actually did anything, if you were actually going to do anything. <laughs> oh, the fact that they thought that that was actually going to do anything, you know, it's not much different than I think the people in the Middle Ages who, you know, slaughtered animals to ward off infection. I mean, I think... Well, you see it, now it's safe. Now you can take off the cloth mask, but only if you've gotten the two vaccinations and gone an additional 14 days out, I'm sure. I'm sure that's the sensible policy of Universal Studios. So zero COVID. What does zero COVID means? It means we're getting back to our roots. We're getting back to oncology, medicine, and policy, my favorite things on earth. We've got a great lineup for you. We've got George Sledge. We've got Nina Shaw uh, from UCSF. We have many more monologues, including a monologue coming about the ODAC. You're not going to want to miss this. So a lot of great episodes in store for you in zero COVID. And we're going to talk about this paper in a future episode. This is one of my all-time favorite things I read. Science. Does it get better than science? Fecal, fecal transplant promotes response to immunotherapy refractory melanoma patients. Is that true? Is that plausible? Well, we will get into it. And is there a control arm? That's always a good question. Is there a control arm? We're going to get into that on a future episode. But today, we're going to talk about ASCO. Cover your eyes. Cover your eyes if you, if you attended ASCO. We're going to talk about ASCO. We're going to get into the weeds on ASCO. We're going to talk about a few abstracts that I think are particularly salient and relevant. So the bear, the bear is looking at oncology now. The bear is ready to tackle what's really important. All right. Let me turn to my notes. ASCO. Um, few thoughts on ASCO. I, I um, did I attend? Um, kind of, kind of attended. I, um, you know, I, 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 I said I read a lot of slides. I read some of the papers that came out. I, I followed on Twitter. Um, you know, and I'm going to take a deep dive on some abstracts that interest me. And if you have some abstracts that interest you, and you want me to take a deep dive on that, um, send them my way. Send them my way. Um, I had one thing that I wanted to say to anyone who was presenting anything at ASCO. If you presented slides, a poster, whatever, listen. Listen, listen to me. Don't link to that ASCO portal and you got to type in your password and all this bullshit that nobody wants to do. Okay, take your presentation, take your video, record a video and post it on YouTube, okay? Why? Why are you posting it behind the paywall? You complain. You are complaining about all the articles people tweet links to and then there's a paywall. Why are you putting your own content behind a paywall? Just put it on YouTube. Put it on YouTube. You know what? Let's be honest. Maybe 20 people are going to listen to that stuff. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the average oncology abstract, myself, my, my work included, my friends, my work included, nobody want to listen to that stuff. But maybe 20 people are going to listen to it. And maybe it's 40. If you post on YouTube, you're doubling your audience. Put about, think about relative risk. Come on, you're doubling it. You're doubling it. Post it on YouTube. Make life easy for people. We don't want to log in to this ASCO portal and try to find your video in this terrible search engine. We want to see it. So if you did an abstract, please do a presentation. Just record it. You know, PowerPoint lets you record the audio. You can record a video, 
post it on YouTube. Please make life easy for us. Next, post your slides. Make your slides available. Go to Google Drive and just post your slides and then tweet the link out. Why are you making it so hard for other people to see your work? Like I'm saying, you may double your audience. Double. Come on, people. That's good. Oncology, imagine we doubled median progression-free survival. Obviously, we wouldn't be talking about overall survival. We talk about surrogates in oncology. Okay, anyway, next thing to talk about. On ASCO Twitter. Oh, boy. Whew. Oh, boy. I got to be honest with you all. And I got to say... It's really painful. I, I try not to look anymore. I mean, it's not just me. You know, it used to be four years ago, you'd go to Twitter and people were tweeting about things they saw, pushing back on claims, um, tweeting slides out, um, giving you some information. Uh, there was a rich and vibrant discussion. Uh, now that's really moved to the DMs. I mean, people are people are sliding into my DMs and telling me what they think about something. By the way, actually, only people I know because I've blocked anyone from messaging me. What do, what do I want somebody who I don't know messaging me? I'm talking about people I know in oncology. They're telling me. Um, and no offense if I don't know you, but uh, don't get in touch with me on Twitter. It won't even permit you to. Um, people I know are sliding into my DMs and really having a great discussion about the limitations and pitfalls of studies. Um, but uh, that's not what I see in the public space. It's become nothing but kissing up. Are you all witnessing this? I mean, everybody, congratulations to this, congratulations to that. Uh, some of this stuff that you're congratulating is probably inaccurate, not meritorious, may even do real harm to people. Can we temper our enthusiasm a little bit? Some of these things you're congratulating. Let's be honest. The person whose name is on that poster, they didn't do that much, okay? Some of these things, Merck designed a study. Um, BMS designed the study. The statisticians at BMS, they did a lot of the plan. The medical director, the senior medical director, they wrote a lot of it at BMS. They, BMS probably made a lot of the slides. And you know what? Other people might have even enrolled more patients. The politics of who's getting to be first or last author and presenting some of these mega studies that has very little to do with intelligence, academic contribution, um, very little to do with skill, knowledge, um, little to do with anything that we would conventionally consider an accomplishment. So, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to really, really suck up to someone. Okay. You don't need to do that. Imposter syndrome. I saw so many tweets about imposter syndrome and I get it. Like I have certainly felt that at points in my career. Um, and I certainly understand how people would feel that. And what is the imposter system? You feel like, you know, you don't belong. You don't really know enough to hang with these, all these smart people. But don't you realize, don't you realize, even consider that the worst thing for your imposter syndrome and related to the burnout, that you feel burnt out, stressed out, like things don't bring you joy. The worst thing for both of these things is for you to be online on Twitter. If you're on social media, you're getting nothing but fear of missing out. You're getting such a, such a staggered um, snapshot of somebody's career. And it's only the sort of highlights that people are, you know, just like on Facebook. Yeah, I used to be on Facebook before I deleted my account many years ago. I didn't post unflattering pictures of myself. I only posted flattering pictures. And that's what you're getting for everybody in your field. They're only posting the flattering things, not the unflattering things. It's not an unvarnished representation of who they are or what they are. And accordingly, it will naturally encourage you to compare who you are in aggregate to their 
selected portfolio that they're unveiling to you. So if you have the imposter syndrome, delete your Twitter account. If you have burnout, don't go on social media. Social media, not the place to talk about burnout. It's the thing that caused it in the first place. Get the hell out of here. Get off with that. Enough, 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 enough of the imposter, enough of the burnout. That's not the place for it. You will find joy and satisfaction in real relationships with real people who are not so perfect as, as people are. Okay. The rankings. Oh my God, please stop. I'm going to talk about abstracts in a second, but I got to talk about some of these, some of those sort of social side of things. The rankings, the most influential, the most tweets, the most tags. And then you get people who tag themselves in their own tweet just to drive up their tags. And then there are these like lousy, I don't know, for-profit companies that are putting out these rankings by the day, by the hour. Then people congratulate each other for being in the rankings. Don't you even, don't you see what's going on? In the universe of oncologists, of which there are, you know, tens of thousands globally, perhaps maybe in excess of 50,000 globally oncologists, hematologists, oncologists. Then let's just take the universe of people who contribute to academics, you know, putting aside the practitioners who are very valuable. But, you know, let's just look at the people who, who are publishing papers. What are we talking about? A workforce of 7,000, 10,000 people publishing. And you're talking about what? 70 people with Twitter accounts, maybe another 150 people who barely use theirs. And then you're competing amongst who's the most tagged in this tiny cohort in this whole set that's not randomly sampled. Um, wh what is this? This is an embarrassment. I mean, come on, enough. Don't, don't encourage these companies that are preying upon you to get their brand out by putting out bullshit rankings. And I suspect, and I, you know, many years ago, we looked at one of these. I think many are, in fact, inaccurate. They, they don't reflect, people are being removed or, pushed up in different ways, but let's get over it. That's not influence. Now let's talk about influence. I wanted to talk about this. Tweeting a bunch of useless, <laughs> tweeting a bunch of useless comments is not influence. Influence means that there's something about what you're saying. There's something about your analysis, your thought process that you're communicating so succinctly, so effortlessly that influences the way other people think about it. And if what you're doing is just tweeting out every abstract being wonderful and great and thought-provoking and wonderful without any analysis in any way, you're not influencing anyone. You're just adding to volume. You're turning up volume, but you're not doing any influencing. Similarly, if your analysis is drawing upon what other people have explicated and, 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 and defined, you're not doing any influencing either. Influencing means you have to read, contemplate, think about things, come to your own conclusion, and then find a way to persuade others of those things. So ranking who's had the most handles or whatever bullshit metric that these companies put out, that's not influence. To call it the most influential people is a farce. You've forgotten what influence is. All right, anyway, you do whatever you want, but God. The last thing I had written here was, uh, let's be honest, I find it funny to give trialists so much credit. You know, I have a lot of friends and they really do real cancer discovery. I mean, they see patients in clinic and they do translational work and they're working on very preclinical targets, okay? If one of those preclinical targets succeeds, which against, uh, uh, actually the odds are against them. And if you don't believe that, you can read my paper with Ryan Waters and Annals of Oncology about um, highly promising cancer findings and the rate with which they translate, which is quite low. Um, but the odds may be against these basic scientists who are doing a very early preclinical work. I'm happy to concede that that's the case. However, they are really the creator of the drugs. The people who elucidated the targets and figured out how the drug works, worked with some company to find the drug and, and did the early clinical work. 
they're the ones who should get the lion's share of the credit for finding those mechanisms, finding out that they're useful. Like Denny, like Denny Slayman and her too. That's a great example and a great story. Like Sawyer's and enzalutamide. Great example, great story, okay? Those are really the people who are driving the cancer innovation. I'm not one of them. I don't pretend to be. I'm a policy person. That's what, that's what, that's a different thing. Um, however, neither are the trialists, okay? Let's be honest. The trialists aren't that either. They're not the ones who discovered the target. They're often not the ones that did the preclinical work, and they're often just the people who carried the football over the last, you know, two feet after the other running back did all the work, okay? Uh, bring it down the field. Um, you know, are they... Should we disparage them? No, I have a lot of respect for them. I actually encourage a lot of trainees to to pursue a career as a trialist. I think it's a venerable career, and if you were had if you actually had some integrity, you could really do a lot. And there are some with a great deal of integrity. I'll just point out Vincent. I mean, I think Vincent is a trialist with a lot of integrity, Raj Kumar, and I think he um, you know avoids conflict of interest and has spoken out on a number of issues. So a trialist can be influential if they decide to push against what they're. Um, what their overlords, uh, the companies, uh, believe. But I find it funny that we give trialists the credit for, you know, uh, an adjuvant study of pembrolizumab. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on, it was a matter. I mean, what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you want? You want a, you want a certificate? I mean, pembrolizumab exists. It's useful in a lot of tumors. It was inevitable that somebody's going to test it in an adjuvant setting, and the trialist probably is not the one picking and choosing the precise inclusion criteria. Um, the company is doing a lot of that behind the scenes, and so you can call it the trialist study. Uh, but you know, it's like if I put a, if I put my business card on a. Ferrari I find in a parking lot doesn't make it my car, okay? It's just, you know, it was there, okay? All right, anyway, all right. That's the social side of it. Now we'll talk about the abstracts. Now we'll talk about the abstracts, the fun. All right, Empower 10, tezolizumab, adjuvant, lung cancer. Interesting. And, and I guess three of the things I want to talk about are adjuvant studies, okay? Adjuvant studies. We've surgically extirpated the entire tumor. If you scan somebody with sophisticated imaging, you wouldn't find anything. Um, that doesn't mean that there isn't tumor there. In fact, in a large fraction, perhaps even the majority, depending on stage and depending on risk factors, there may be microscopic tumor. That tumor is going to rear its ugly head one day. That's why you'll have relapse. Some people, however, may be cured, depending on the stage, depending on the risk factors. It might be sizable, 20%, 30%, 40%, 50%, depending on the tumor and depending on, um, uh, on, the, on, the, on the histology, on the risk factors. Into this space, you insert adjuvant drugs. Adjuvant drugs are drugs that they have a tall task. What's the real goal? The real goal of adju adjuvant therapy is that you increase the curative fraction. That's the gold standard goal. By that, I mean that after some fixed course of therapy, that there is a higher fraction of people who many years later, later are alive and well and free of the cancer than would otherwise be. And in fact, that is the case for a lot of cytotoxic drugs. That's the case for cytotoxic adjuvant therapy in colon cancer. That's the case for cytotoxic therapy in lung cancer. In breast cancer, we have good evidence that adjuvant therapy, uh, chemotherapy in many situations, it improves overall survival. For triple negative breast cancer, that may even be a higher cure rate um, for hormone receptor cancers, it's a little bit more complicated, but there I think the gold standard is improving overall survival. 
Um, because relapse, the hazard function of relapse is not like the hazard function of relapse for hormone receptor negative cancer. Um, there is always some uh, probability that's non-trivial that goes out many, many years, even 10, 20 years. Um, you may not be curing people, but extending overall survival is the goal then. And, and, and we do that. And we do that with extended uh, tamoxifen with uh, long courses of uh, hormonal therapy and hormone receptor positive breast cancer. So what is the goal of adjuvant? Number one, increase curative fraction. Number two, increase overall survival, even though you didn't increase curative fraction. That's a very valuable goal. Um, number three, I guess increase quality of life. Quality of life and, and pushing out the time until somebody has symptomatic and bad cancer. That's number three, very difficult to measure. Um, but what do we do in cancer drug space? We use disease-free survival. We're gonna talk about that. So let's talk about Empower 10. Empower 10 is um, atezolizumab non-small cell lung cancer. Again, I don't have all the data because there's no publication, but here's what I see. It stages 1B to 3A patients. Hopefully those 1B patients, uh, large tumor. These are generally the people in whom we think about adjuvant therapy. They all had to have gotten between one and four cycles of chemotherapy. Now that bothered me, actually. I think you should have only enrolled people who got four cycles of chemotherapy because by Allowing the protocol to enroll people who just got one cycle of chemotherapy, um, you might inadvertently encourage people not to get proper adjuvant chemotherapy. For instance, um, there's somebody in your clinic, they've gotten two cycles, and uh, the company's saying, you know, you got to enroll them on the study. We don't know how long you're going to have spots, maybe something like that. So you might say, you know what, even though they've got two cycles, like now's a good chance you fit, you're able, just hop on this study. And, uh, you know, who knows what the future may bring. Maybe you won't have spots. Maybe you won't be eligible. Um, you know, hop on it now. And what you've done to that person is you've actually increased their risk of relapse by shortchanging them on proven chemotherapy, okay? Um, you don't want that. Uh, you, and I, I know that's not what they mean by it. They mean by it for the person who can't really tolerate chemotherapy. Of course, that's flimsy. Um, there may also be somebody who, said, who can tolerate chemotherapy just fine. And the doctor could really, you know, spend an hour with somebody and explain why they ought to get adjuvant chemotherapy for, say, stage, uh, you know, high-risk stage two disease. Um, sure. Um, but now the doctor says, you know what, you really don't like chemo. Why don't you like chemo? Maybe it's a lot of mythology, a lot of old movies you've watched where people are vomiting and some things that aren't true in the modern era. But instead of disabusing you of those, um, of those uh, falsehoods, I'm going to say, let's just give you one cycle so you can qualify for this study. We'll throw you on and we'll forget about the chemotherapy. So sort of a lazy trialist of you, a trialist who's lazy, doesn't want to really counsel the patient about the proven virtues of chemotherapy and the unproven possibility of immunotherapy, just pushing the patient on. So I don't like that one to four things. And I think it'll be interesting to see how many people enroll with one, two, three, four, et cetera. Um, a Tezo or best supportive care, I think that's fine. I mean, that is the standard afterwards, best supportive care. Um, 16 months of a Tezo, that's costly. My first question was, are they getting proper staging? Are these are patients getting brain MRs and PETs? Uh, let's hope so. But I know in this uh, space, they often do inadequate staging. What does inadequate staging do? Here's what it does. If you don't do staging like we do in this country, you will have some occult metastatic disease in this study. You will. It's inevitable. That's why we do the staging people, of course. It's to exclude the occult metastatic disease. You want to know about occult metastatic disease because you know what the standard of care for occult metastatic disease is in this country? It's metastatic treatment, which is chemoimmunotherapy which is these, these same exact drug, Atezo, it's already used in that space. So by doing lousy, lackluster staging, you will include some people who need this drug anyway. And so you're gonna, you're gonna 
put the weight of your study on those people as well. So I hope they did adequate staging. I suspect they didn't because a lot of people do lousy staging in this space. Some people say, well, you know, we don't have MR brain in this in our, in the country that, you know, is conducting this study. And then I ask them uh, if they don't have some of these US-based staging, well, could do you think you can afford 16 cycles of atezolizumab then if it was approved? I mean, this trial is not informative to your nation nor our nation. We're the nation that will pay for the Atezo. So you ought to do the staging in line with our standard of care. Your nation has a different standard of care for staging. I don't even think that's wrong. That's a societal priority. However, if the trial is positive, you won't be able to afford the drug anyway. So this trial states neither of us. It doesn't say it us and it doesn't say you. Okay, second question. When they progress, are they getting chemo IO? This is the key question. In all of these tumor types, all of these drugs that are moving the adjuvant space are already have a role in the metastatic setting. For that large fraction of people who may be relapsing eventually, it ought to be used. So the second question is, are they getting chemo IO upon relapse? And then the question is, is there a survival benefit to giving it to everybody upfront early, much toxicity, many people who otherwise would have felt fine because you've surgically resected them and they're off treatment versus giving it on the back end when the handful of people, perhaps even the majority of people relapse. Is there an advantage to giving it upfront? It's different than cytotoxic drugs. Cytotoxic drugs for advanced disease we believe the ability of the cytotoxic drug to purge the body in metastatic disease is zero. It has no chance of purging the body of cancer cells. But in the adjuvant setting, it, we, do, we believe it has a chance of purging the body of the microscopic disease. With pdl one drugs, that principle of biology is fundamentally altered. I think many people believe that even the metastatic setting, it can purge the body of the last of the cancer such that you have long-term durable remission. In fact, that's what we talk about all the time. So by moving it up front, you don't necessarily increase the probability that you will have that durable remission than when you have visible disease. It fundamentally, I think, has a different philosophical thinking than cyto cytotoxic drugs. Maybe put another way, one of the entire principles of adjuvant is that a drug given later that can only palliate given early can cure. But with pd one there's some people who think you give it later and you can still cure. So giving it earlier doesn't have any greater allure in that setting, if you were to believe that. The next thing I would say, the DFS benefit is modest. Uh, how modest is it? Um, <clears throat> the authors in the abstract report the intention to treat p-value. It's not yet significant. And they report stratified analyses by pdl one CPS score in a number of ways. Over 50, the hazard ratio is 0.43. Over 1, 0.66. Less than 1, 0.97. Hmm, that's not good. 0.97 is no. So if over 50 is 0.43 and over 1 is 0.66 and less than 1 is 0.97, what's less than 50? What's 1 to 49? Over 1 includes over 50. What's 1 to 49? What's, what's less than 50? 49 to 0. And the answer is I calculated less than 50, 49 to 0. And the answer is it's 0.93, I think, with 630 people. What do I mean there? I suspect this trial is being entirely driven by over 50. The DFS, time to relapse, disease-free survival, time to relapse or death, is being driven, I think, by people over 50. What about, so is it being driven by 55? pdl one CPS score 55? No, I don't know about that. They don't report over 90, over 80, over 70, over 60. So I can't calculate. If I were to wager a guess, if I were to wager a guess, I believe it's being driven by all over 80. 
I believe it's being driven by over 80. If I were to wager a guess, why do I wager that guess? Because I read a paper by Aguilar and colleagues in Annals of Oncology. Go check it out. Then maybe you might wager the same guess. So what do I want to see when this paper comes out? I want to see the DFS hazard ratio, not by nested subgroups, lumped, sorry, yeah, not by nested or lumped subgroups. I want to see it by adjacent subgroups. I want to see the DFS 90 to 100, 80 to 90, 70 to 80, 60 to 70. I want to see the DFS in all that so I can see exactly where, who's benefiting DFS. But that doesn't even mean OS. If you don't benefit DFS, you don't go, you're not going to benefit OS. If you do benefit DFS, the question is, could you have had the same OS if you gave those people drugs when they relapse? We know over 90 CPS score, their response is exquisite when you give them Pembro in initial treatment or Pembro chemotherapy. It's exquisite, exquisite response. So you really want to ask, do you need to give all these people after surgery up front a Tezo? Or can you have the same survival outcome by waiting to see who relapses and then giving them a drug you know has an exquisite response rate and perhaps even some real durability? You see the question? They're not even thinking about the question correctly because it's been so controlled by, I think, the, the company. I guess what I want to say here is that trialists, you know, if you're going to, you know, it, it, you're getting all the praise. You're getting all the praise for the study. Why can't you ask the company to let you see the data 90 to 100, 80 to 90, 70 to 80, 60 to 70? Allow us to see the data. Don't do over 50 over one, which includes over 50. Stop with this. Please stop. This is ridiculous. It's not, you're the same people who say you want to find out, we just quote, need biomarkers. You're sitting on a biomarker that you're misanalyzing it. Why don't you just let us see this biomarker? If you're putting your name on this, have some courage to go push the company and get the data, okay? And, I, and you know what happens. If I email you, I know what I get. I've never seen the data. I don't have the data. The company has the data. That's what you tell me. Okay, come on. DFS. I saw some people on Twitter say DFS matters. It matters because if you ask patients, does it matter? They say it matters. Well, the patient says it matters because they have been living in an ecosystem where they've been bombarded with news that tells them it matters. Doesn't mean it matters. Does DFS matter? Well, that depends. Let me see what DFS means. If you're asking me if I've had surgery with lung cancer, does the time until I feel bad from recurrent cancer matter? Of course, that matters. The time until I feel bad, that matters a great deal to me. That's my quality of life. Do I want to extend that time? Absolutely, I do. Although with the caveat that once I relapse, my quality of life is the same as it otherwise would be. If there's a decrement there, then I think there's some trade-off that I'd have to make. But do I want to maximize the time I feel good? Yeah. Is DFS the time you feel good? No, 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 no. That's what you're wrong about. You're just lying to people on the public to, to trick them into thinking DFS matters. DFS is the time until some doctor told you on some CT scan there's some ditzel somewhere. Sometimes that ditzel's so small, you can't even biopsy. We've got to follow with another scan. Sometimes you can biopsy it and you prove that it's recurrent cancer, but you don't feel anything yet. DFS is the time until that endpoint. That's not the time until you have back pain from a huge lung cancer recurrence. Those are different things. You've created a construct that has sucked out the patient from it. It's a surrogate endpoint. And it is a surrogate endpoint that has a certain correlation coefficient with survival in meta-regression. But that's only true for cytotoxic drugs. It's not true for Tezo. And it's not true for targeted therapy, my friends, Aussie. So... I see some people say DFS matters because it matters to patients. Then I saw some of these patients point out that drugs, if, if the FDA approves many drugs that improves OS, uh, sorry, they said this. 
if the FDA approves many drugs that improves PFS, that means we live longer. And I think that's not what I mean. If the, if the FDA approves many drugs that improve OS, you live longer. But if they approve many drugs that improve PFS without improving OS, you don't live longer. That's the whole crux of the issue. So the question here is, in the, so I'm willing to say, I suspect that the benefit in uh, Empower 10 is going to be in the above 80, not even above the 50. I think it's in the above 80. And I think the question for them is, do they need a Tezo up front after surgery or should they get it when they have relapse disease? Is there a survival benefit to doing that or a health-related quality of life benefit to doing that? And if a cooperative group actually had some spine, they would do that study. But these days, spine be at low in cooperative groups. Okay, next one. Keno 564, Pembro RCC adjuvant. This is not just a randomized control trial of any adjuvant therapy. It's a randomized control trial of a particular subgroup of RCC. So here it is. The key inclusion criteria include age over 18, histologically confirmed clear cell RCC of intermediate high risk, uh, T2 on path, grade four or sarcomatoid, N0, M0, or T3 on path, any grade, N0, M0, or high risk, which is defined as T4, any grade, N0, M0, um, or M1 NED, M1 NED. That's a different ball game. M1 NED. They have metastatic disease. You just cut it out, surgically extirpated it. To be honest with you, there are a lot of people who would use existing regulatory um, provisos to provide those people with uh, checkpoint inhibitor. Um, uh, but anyway, put that aside. But I, I, I don't think you ought to. Some of those people, maybe you'll get some mileage. Um, also, the question was how long after the initial surgery do they have uh, the disease that is metastasectomied? Uh, that is a prognostic factor. They all have ECOG-01, um, tumor sample, sample available for biomarker analysis. So, um, you know, we need to read the paper. I haven't read the paper. My thoughts, keynote five, six, four, one. DFS. DFS has a statistically significant benefit, but I point out that the curves come back together. So the question is, um, one, is that going to be the case when the data are mature? Two, if the curves really do come back together, delaying the time to recurrence, that is, does not an adjuvant make. That's not cure. That's not OS. That's just delaying DFS. Um, I think that's quite bad. If that's the case, we will find out with more follow-up. Um, the biggest separation is in time point one at six months. And then the subsequent separation is modest, I think, by looking at the Kaplan-Meier DFS curves. So what that means to me is that there's a small cohort of people who are going to relapse quickly. And by giving them Pembro up front, do you cure them? I don't think so. I think you probably delay recurrence. So I think I'm, I'm, I'm particularly worried that this is a delay recurrence kind of drug. Um, overall survival is going to be key here, just like with the Tezo. Um, overall survival, you want to know by giving all these high-risk people upfront Pembro, do you have a survival benefit over giving them Pembro TKI when they present with de novo disease, Pembro Axi, or any of the other combos that is in vogue these days? You can go back and listen to the clear discussion with Kareen uh, Tawaji. Um, that's the key. They got to get IO at progression. They got to get IO at some point. I suspect this study is not going to tell us what percent people get subsequent IO. I suspect it's running in a lot of places where uh, that doesn't happen. And the last thought I had when I looked at the forest plot was that M1 NED is doing heavy lifting. The hazard ratio is really good there because probably what they're enrolling is metastatic patients who just had something excised. Maybe they're presenting with synchronous metastasis and they're having it all excised at the same time. Um, and then they're getting this. And it's really not really an adjuvant study 
as much as a treating a fully resected metastatic disease with drugs you know have a benefit in metastatic disease study. So we will want to see what is the effect on the real M0 patients. Um, they point out that they, the, quote, um, hazard ratio for DFS, that confidence interval doesn't cross one, Sure, but I want to know, does the OS hazard ratio not cross one in those people when you give appropriate therapy for metastatic disease? Okay, Olympiad. Then I'll have a few general thoughts about these three adjuvant studies. Olympiad. Um, this is, of course, the randomized controlled trial of Olaparib or sugar pill in people with neoadjuvant or adjuvant um, triple negative breast cancer with germline BRCA mutations. Okay, a lot to unpack here, a lot to unpack. Um, patients were required to have completed all local therapy, including radiotherapy, which interacts with PARP inhibitors. So they had to be at least two weeks out from radiotherapy, but not more than 12. They had to be eligible with germline BRCA1, BRCA2, pathogenic or likely pathogenic variant by local or central testing. And they had to have high risk HER2 negative primary breast cancer after definitive local treatment and neoadjuvant or adjuvant therapy. Okay. So I wanted to know who's benefiting just the pathogenic BRCA1s or the likely pathogenic. And actually I looked and looked and looked, I could not find, and if anyone can find this, send it to me. The forest plot based on genetic mutation. The forest plot that they include, we're gonna talk about in a second, in the paper itself, the manuscript, I think is uh, lackluster, not good enough. Okay, patients had to have completed at least six cycles of neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy containing anthracyclines, taxanes, or both agents. Platinum chemotherapy was allowed. Sure, it was allowed, but only 25% of people got it. Those, and, and in those people, the, the conference interval on the forest plot was really wide, even for DFS, which is their primary endpoint, or IDFS. Those who were treated with neoadjuvant chemotherapy were required to have not had a pathologic CR and had a CPS EG score of three or higher. Well, the moment I read that line, I got irritated because I knew that there is data that people um, who have HER2 negative disease who don't achieve PATH-CR after neoadjuvant treatment should get Zalota, capecitabine, or Zalota. Oh, yes, this is the great sapecitabine gate. Pre-COVID, the things people used to get angry at me for were pronouncing capecitabine, sapecitabine. Um, Post-COVID, they got angry at me for a few other things. But pre-COVID, that was the issue. Um, Zalota, I vowed to only call it Zalota now. Um, here's what they write, quote, after standard neoadjuvant chemotherapy containing an anthracycline taxane or both, the addition of adjuvant Zalota was safe and effective in prolonging DFS and OS among patients with HER2 negative breast cancer. That was from the older study, I think 2017 NEJM study. And here's what the authors of the Olympia study say, Olympia trial, post neoadjuvant safe, post-neoadjuvant Zalota was not permitted because the therapy was not the standard of care when the trial was designed. Oh, not the standard of care when it was designed. What about when you enrolled patients, say? How about when you enrolled patients, like actually brought the patient and made them sign the document? Not when you sat around thinking you're going to do the study, but when you actually did the study. How about then? And the answer was you enrolled in 2014. In 2015, you had these results of Zalota presented at, uh, I believe, San Antonio. Uh, and you continue to enroll for year after year after year with negligent care for these patients. You had a drug with a proven OS benefit. You withheld from patients because it was, quote, not standard of care when the trial was designed. Get out of here. Come on. I'm biting my tongue. I really am biting my tongue because I'm not saying what I really think. Enough of this. Try this. Go read the paper that Mani, Mani Moyudin and I did in, my, in myeloma. If you know before your trial runs that your control arm is a negligent standard of care, or if you know early on in a study, or 
if you know later on you got to append the control arm. You wouldn't let your own mother get that, not get Zalota. You wouldn't. The paper came out in 2015. If you enroll in 2018, you wouldn't. Come on. You wouldn't randomize your mother to placebo. Come on. Have some, have some human decency. Fix the trials. The trial control arm has to reflect what people are actually doing outside of the trial. If you're changing your practice, you got to change it in the trial. Just protocol amended. It's not so hard. And I know why you're not doing it or why the company doesn't want to do it. It makes it harder to win. That's the whole thing. It makes it harder to win. But so what if you lose? Is it is winning worth depriving your mother of the proper treatment? No. Come on. Get out of here. Fewer deaths were reported in the Olaparib group than the placebo group with a has ratio 0.68. However, the between group difference did not cross the pre-specified multiple testing procedure boundary for the significance of P. Well, you, you got to slice and dice your alpha so much because you're testing all these endpoints that aren't really what matters to people. Um, but we shall see. I want to know if OS is better when you give appropriate therapy for metastatic disease. I don't know that to be the case because I have not seen you report what people are getting when they have metastatic disease and how many people get Olaparib when they're supposed to get Olaparib because it always, it already has an approval, triple negative breast germline bracket in the metastatic setting. So they got to get it when they're supposed to get it. So it's a trial of early Olaparib for many versus Olaparib for some on the back end. Last thing I'd say, let's just say you accept this. You're happy to say, I don't need an OS. IDFS is fine. This is good. They didn't give Zalota potentially negligently, but that's okay with me. Let's say you accept all these failures. How much does it cost to prevent one distant event? We're not talking about survival, just a distant event. How much does it cost? What does it cost? And I think it costs, I think Olaparib costs $13,000 a month. If you think differently, you can use your number. I think you got to take it for a year. If you think differently, use your number. And I think you got to treat about 12.5 people for a year to prevent one event. So I think you're talking about $2 million an event. I think it's a $2 million an event drug. Um, I think that's a bit high. And I think my friends in Europe will think it's high. I think in this country we'll do it, but in other countries they'll think it's a bit high. And I think we have to ask ourselves, trialists, why are you embarking on studies that are going to give us adjuvant drugs that cost millions of dollars to avert an event? Change the power calc. Okay, pick the high risk people, just do it in those people. High risk, more event rate, more delta, more delta, more absolute delta, lower NNT, lower NNT, lower cost to prevent an event. Come on, mathematics 101. All right, on this point, let's talk about the, all the adjuvant drugs. DFS, DFS is not a clinical endpoint. Anyone who says otherwise is, is factually wrong. DFS is a radiographic endpoint and it's a radiographic endpoint under the contrived conditions you're doing so many scans so religiously, which is all these studies are doing which is slightly not what we do in the real world, where scans sometimes get pushed a little bit further, but in these studies, they don't. It is a radiographic artifact. They're pursuing these, 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 these potential mets with a lot of vigor to prove that they're mets or not. Some of these things you would have just watched in somebody, okay? It's not a measure of how long until the patient feels bad for metastatic cancer. That's what it sounds like, but if somebody tells you that you're being bamboozled, that's not what it is. It often has a poor correlation with OS. In these settings, in RCC, it has no, no, there's not even a, you can't even test the correlation with OS because nothing improved DFS except Sutent in one lousy study and not in the other. So you can't even assess the correlation. Nothing even did it. And in lung, you can't assess the correlation because IO has never yet done it. And in Olaparib, which I think I, I, I would be willing to concede, one can rely a little bit on some of the, um, 
um, cytotoxic adjuvant data, DFS has a very poor correlation with OS. You can see my videos on my three-part lecture, or my 10-part lecture series. So far, three are out, but more to come. Um, the last thing I'd say, some people have this meme that says like, oh, when it came to Adora, we argued tooth and nail about whether or not to treat. In breast cancer, they accept Olaparib. So we in lung cancer, we are setting the bar too high because our breast colleagues are accepting these DFS benefits. Uh, no, no, don't learn from the breast oncology field, okay? They're doing studies like Neratinib's adjuvant study, okay? Overpowered, finding clinically meaningless differences for drugs that have 40% grade three diarrhea. You know, they, they, they've, they've, lost, uh, they've lost their way. Um, you want drugs that make people live longer or live better. And the reason we're arguing about all these drugs is you have not yet proven that they help people live longer or live better. Then you say, okay, well, we have a trend towards living longer, living better. Well, a trend towards is, is useless. And there's a lot of great papers that show why it's useless. Oftentimes it goes the other way later. Then you say, well, it's going to show that. And I, I actually think you might be right. It's going to show OS benefit, but in part because you're providing your control group negligent care. I mean, care beneath what you would do for your own mother in your own clinic. And so as long as you do that, you know, that doesn't really reflect it. But um, I think lung should not learn from breast. Breast should learn from lung and set their bar a little bit higher um, to provide drugs that really provide benefit. Ironically, one of the few things that did do that was Zolota. That drug actually had an OS benefit, and that's why many of us adopted it, myself included. Um, but that's the one thing you didn't you didn't include in your trial. What are you doing? Get out of here. Okay, last thing. This has gone way too long, and I got to go because I got some stuff to do. Um, and this is the new plenary session. Try to do it unscripted, unedited. Sotoracib, 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 sotoracib. Uh, RAS inhibitor. Oh, RAS, that's a good thing to inhibit. Why? Because Varmus won the Nobel Prize and Varmus had been trying to admit it, ed, 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 inhibit it for quite a while. Put a lot of money in that when he's been running, running things, which is also a reason why, side note, sidebar, you got to change the leaders at NIH, NCI, NIAD, maybe every 10 years, 20 years, maybe certainly every 40 years. <laughs> You can't have the same people in charge of funding for 30 years, you know, say 30 years, because they everybody has their own, you know, our own, for lack of a better word, fetishes, things that they like. And, you know, Varmus like RAS. Um, people have their own, uh, Collins likes genomics. Collins wrote an article saying, you know, that by 2015, somebody with high blood pressure would get a genomic test to tell them what drug to take, okay? I mean, people, I mean, that obviously didn't happen. But people have things they like, and you want to recycle, get new blood, new ideas, especially in funding, where you don't want these people with a stranglehold on the funds. And so no matter what you think of any of these people, you got to get, you got to get go. You got to go from any funding agency after a few years. Okay, anyway, so Varmus was interested in RAS. They finally drugged RAS. Oh, well, not all RAS, just D G12C RAS. They were able to drug that with this drug. And many people celebrate this drug. They keep saying, oh my God, we finally done the final frontier. We're drugging RAS, drugging RAS, drugging RAS. Does anyone want to talk about, is it a good drug for RAS? How about that? The response rate is 36, 37%. That's not so good. You know, when the realm of targeted therapy, if you talk about a targeted therapy drug in lung cancer, I want, I want 70, 80%, 60% at least before I get out of my seat. The median DOR is 11 months, but DOR, duration of response is a product of both the fact you were able to generate a response and how deep that response is, but also the nature of indolent biology. 
the more your selection filters pick people with slow-growing tumors, you're going to get a long DOR and PFS and OS just by watching them because their tumors are ticking along at a slower rate. And all of the things that go into phase one, phase two, early phase trials selects for these people with inland biology. So these time differences, they're not going to hold up. And in fact, I think Bishal did a nice paper showing that they will shrink in subsequent studies. The response rate is lackluster. And if I'm perfectly honest, if you took people with second line, because by the way, this drug is not approved front line. It's not approved. Let me say that again. It's not, not approved front line. It's approved for subsequent therapy because it's got a lackluster response rate. And I want to see a randomized control trial against this. And you know what? Go ahead and get and try yourself against Taxol Remusirumab. Try yourself. See if you can do it. See if you can even beat Taxol Remusirumab. I'd love to see that. Um, but, you know, that's the problem with it. I don't know. In oncology, we get some, we get some so excited about new mechanism of action, new mechanism of action, new mechanism of action. Um, a patient who takes a drug with a new mechanism of action who suffers severe toxicity and dies doesn't care about the mechanism of action. They care about their well-being, their longevity. Stop being seduced by new mechanisms of action. Mechanism of action is for laboratory scientists. It's not for clinicians. Clinicians focus on living longer, living better, cost, tolerability, ability to get things done for your patients, those kinds of things. Convenience, um, not mechanism of action. So, you know, am I excited about this drug? Not really, not, not really, with a 37% response rate. Would I, I'd love to see a randomized trial, see if it even beat, beat Taxol, Ramusirumab. And then, you know what, if somebody's going to quote me some historical comparison, you should know. Uh, one, I think it's quite hard to find a historical comparison for G12C. I looked a long time. I couldn't find a nice clean one just in that cohort. Two, um, these people on this phase one study are being selected with additional selection filters, making your comparison invalid. Three, we have multiple umbrella analyses comparing historical controls to randomized studies on the same question with poor concordance. Hello, which is why we do randomized studies. We don't just do a bunch of historical controls in life. Um, so these are all sort of inferior levels of evidence. Um, I actually think in oncology, we reward people who don't do randomized trials because we give their drug more credit than credit is due. All right, so this concludes episode one, season four, plenary session, hashtag zero COVID, no COVID. We're done with COVID. We're back next time, George Sledge. We've got Nina Shaw. We've got that science paper. We've got oncology, hard hitting policy analysis. You won't want to miss this season. Enjoy, and thanks for, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Plenary Session. Plenary Session was produced by Kiana Klossner. Music by Ian Straley and Audrey Tran. Plenary Session is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on Plenary Session are those of whoever said it. Until next time. <laughs>